Hi, I'm Larry Castle here with Ken Brown, and you're watching That's a Good Question, episode 24, How Can Christians Be in the World But Not of the World? Pastor Ken, today we are going to develop a topic that we introduced last week, and that is the idea of Christians being in the world, but not of the world. So we, we looked in that episode about how Christians can personally avoid worldliness themselves, uh, you know, worldly thoughts and words and actions. And today we want to extend that to how Christians should view worldly people. Uh, if you will. Specifically, how should they regard non-Christians and uh, whether mm. a non-Christian can provide anything of value for us? So uh, first, uh, last week, you gave us some helpful definitions to guide us in determining what, uh, what, what is worldly and what is not. Can you uh, start off, off today with reviewing that, uh, just set the table with that for our discussion today? Well, for many of us who have had the privilege of growing up in a conservative Christian environment in our homes, in our churches, possibly even our schooling, that, that blessed environment also presented a challenge. And that challenge is this. How do we relate to life outside of our, our bubble? Or do we need to relate to it at all on a meaningful level? Why can't we just have our own versions of everything that the world does and then thereby will presumably avoid the risk of being tainted by the world. Now, th this quest to remain pure from the world is important because the Bible indicates repeatedly that there's something amiss with the world. I gave uh, some of these passages last week, but let me repeat them. Romans 12:2: do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In James chapter 1 and verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, keep to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That same book, James chapter 4, verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And then 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15 do not live, love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever." A default method then for avoiding the world and worldliness for many of us became this. If the culture does it, then you don't. If those outside the church are doing it, then you avoid it. Now, this may really have been more caught than taught, as so many things are, but it very definitely was the impression that I and many of my peers came away with. And in the years since my teen and young adult years, I've met many, many more who have caught that same idea. Yeah, so can you remind us, uh, for Christians who then want to live a holy life, one that's pleasing to the Lord, uh, how, how do we avoid the world then? Since as you demonstrated from what you read in Scripture, that um, hmm. it casts the world in a very negative light. The Bible describes yeah. it as a negative thing. 
Well, we said last week that the word world in the Bible is not primarily a place, but rather an arrangement, a system of values and allegiances and priorities that are that are contrary to God's truth. Worldliness is, we gave this definition last week, it's fallen values expressed in culture. But notice that modifier, fallen or sinful. Now that's important because it suggests that not all of what is done in non-Christian culture is sinful or wrong. If it was, then that definition could simply be worldliness is values expressed in culture on the assumption that all that the culture does is wrong or, or worldly. But no, the proper definition is worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture. The truth is the culture sometimes gets it right. We used last week the example of marriage. It's a good thing that God's institution of marriage is carried out in societies all over the world, including our own. It gives us stability to family life and to society as a whole. And we talked about some other cultural expressions like, like music. Not all that the culture does and produces is fallen, is sinful. Worldliness, fallen values are always wrong, but culture's wider than worldliness. And it's not always wrong. So we have to then do this. We have to analyze the culture and see what it's doing in order to determine whether it's expressing fallen values in its language, its customs, its fashion, its arts, and its media, since that's what culture is, as we defined it last week. It's the collective values of a society in its language and its customs, fashion, arts, and, and media. So we don't just dismiss what is happening, or happening around us simply because it's not Christian. Instead, we have to analyze it to determine whether it conforms to God's truth. And Jesus is the one who taught that we are in the world, but not of the world. And he said in that same context that you need to be, as a Christian, as a follower of his, sanctified. That means set apart, made holy. And he says, this is how it happens. He said, sanctify them by your truth, your word. The word of God is truth. So here's what we have to do. We have to compare what the culture is doing to the word of God. And then we have to determine whether it's worldly and we avoid those things that indeed fit that category of worldly. Hmm. So, so something can be done by a non-Christian that's not sinful, it's not fallen, and in some sense it can even be good, hmm. uh, but it's also not explicitly Christian. So, so worldliness, fallen values, those things are always anti-Christian, uh, but culture may be non-Christian, but not necessarily anti-Christian. Is that, hmm. that's right? Um, so you're kind of saying there's a middle ground between Christian and non-Christian that both can equally participate in. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's really the, the case. As we said last week, you see that in cultural expressions like a society's marriage custom or it's it's music. The people doing these may not be Christian, but the things that they are doing are not anti-Christian. And in the case of marriage and of much music, even good. Now, this brings up a huge point that, that many Christians, and especially conservative Christians like us, it's something that we often fail to fully appreciate. It's something called common grace, common grace. Many years ago, I was reading an interview with a Christian scholar, a Lutheran named Martin Marty. Now, Marty has passed on, but for years, 
He was called on by news organizations to comment on developments in the religious world because he often had keen insights to, to share. And in this particular interview, he said something that startled me when I read it. He said, and I'm paraphrasing this a bit because it's been many years, but he said, fundamentalists do not have a robust theory of common grace. And, and I looked at those words on the page, and at first I rejected them because I grew up in a fundamentalist, conservative Christian environment, and I learned the term common grace there. But the more I thought about it, the more I agreed with what he said, because it matched my own experience, in which there were there was no commonality between the believer and the unbeliever. And that's why we tended toward isolation from the culture, but not just from the culture, even from non-Christian people. I knew many people who, when they came to Christ in that environment, the first thing they did was unload their relationships with, with non-Christian people. So, Pastor Larry, in answer to your question, is there a sort of middle ground between the Christian and the non-Christian that both of us can equally participate in? It's yes. The answer to that is yes. And that's because there is something called common grace. God gives a measure of grace to all people. Saving grace is experienced only by those who are Christian. But common grace, as the word suggests, is common to all humanity. It enables even non-Christians to do good and worthwhile things because common grace mitigates the effects of sin. Non-Christian people, because of common grace, are not as bad as they could be. So let's just think about this for a second. Many of our viewers are, are familiar with the, the term total depravity, uh, that the Bible teaches that all of us come into the world sinful, totally sinful. And we might mistake that to mean that we are as bad as we possibly could be. But experience and the Bible teaches that that's not, that's not the case. We're capable of being much worse than we are. But thankfully, we don't carry out all of the sinful things that we might be inclined to do. And that's in part because of common grace that God gives. It restrains the impulses of the heart with things like laws. These are given to us. The structure is given to us by God as a matter of grace, given to all people, and it restrains the effects of sin. So things like laws and social mores, marriage, family, structure, organization, all of that restrains the chaos that could and, and would come from our sin nature if God didn't provide this, uh, this common grace. So, so we're saying that uh, someone doesn't really have someone doesn't have to be a Christian to do good things. A person does not have to be a Christian to do good things, but they do have to be a Christian to do ultimately good things. That is, a, a non-Christian can do relative good. They can do the right thing, like helping an elderly lady cross the street, but they never do it for the right reason, which is always the glory of God. But nevertheless, we're still thankful for the good that's done because it makes life bearable, it makes life better, it makes life even enjoyable when humans use their gifts in helpful ways. Yeah, I think this um, this relates to something that I've observed in Christian thinking, uh, the way some Christians think that they, they not only believe that non-Christians can do nothing that's morally good, but they don't think that they can do anything well even. You know, so so somehow if it's not Christ, a Christian who does it, 
then you can't mm. trust it. That that's a, that exactly right, and I think we are seeing more and more of that uh, in the last in the last several years. There's this divide between us and them that takes it beyond what the Bible teaches. There is no commonality. There is no room for this common grace, and it casts them in such a negative light that they can't do anything that's uh, that's of value. Uh, this is why some people think that, for example, they have to make whoever the president is a Christian in order for him to be a good president. And I remember reading a good pastor friend saying it's that George a W. Cast than it at others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure, for sure. And you know, even with George W. Bush, who both you and I would consider a, a good man and, and a good president overall. Uh, but I remember this pastor friend saying, I believe he's a born-again man. Now, with Bush, he, he may be, as he did say in a debate uh, when he was running for president, that the most influential person in his life uh, is Jesus. And he does have this story that may be a conversion where he just quit drinking cold turkey. He began attending a, a Bible study. You know, that, that may indicate a, a changed uh, life spiritually. And all of that was before he became president. So I don't, I don't know whether he's a born-again Christian or not. But either way, it does not affect my view of him as a leader and, and a president. Now, I've recently read people who try to make President Trump into a Christian. Now, that's honestly, that's some really, really hefty lif lifting yeah. there. The president has never retracted his statement that he's never asked forgiveness for anything. I see no reason to believe that he's a Christian. But again, he can be a good president without being a Christian due to common to common grace. So that's the only point. I'm not trying to make a political point there about George W. Bush versus President Trump. But to just say in both cases or in any other president's case, you judge them based upon what they contribute in terms of their leadership and their policies and how they go about it, uh, whether they are a Christian or not. Decades ago... Uh, I saw signs around town uh, where we are located in Southeast Michigan advertising an asphalt paving company. <laughs> now, I don't know if this company is still around. And if it is, my apologies in advance. And if you know of this company or knew of this company, again, I apologize. But it was called Ron's Christian Asphalt Paving. And I remember bringing this up in a class that I was teaching on similar subjects like we're discussing. Uh, and I brought it up at the church where I was serving at the time before we planted the church where Pastor Larry and I now serve. Uh, I brought it up as an example of a misunderstanding of common grace so that you have to ensure that whoever does your work is a, is a Christian. And someone objected to me saying this, uh, saying, have you seen these signs around town, Ron's Christian Asphalt Paving? And they said, no, it's not saying Christian Asphalt Paving. Rather, it's the guy's name, Ron Christian. So it, so it's Ron Christian's Asphalt Paving. So it came down to where's the apostrophe? <laughs> Is it Ron Christian's or Ron's was that Christian? Dr. And, Combs asking What's that? that? <laughs> Was that Dr. Combs asking where was the apostrophe? <laughs> Dr. Combs, he's the guy always after you for putting the apostrophe or the comma or any of that in the wrong place. You're right. No, it wasn't him. He wasn't there. So that week we checked the signs and sure enough, it's Ron's Christian Asphalt Paving. Now, and so here was a company 
advertising its Christian status as an asphalt paver. Now, now listen to this. There is no such thing as Christian asphalt. And there's really, and there's no such thing as Christian asphalt paving. Not, not if even you, in the church parking lot? Not even the church parking lot. The asphalt okay. isn't really sanctified or, or anything like that. If you now, if you want a, a Christian contractor of whatever sort, a plumber, a carpenter, a mechanic, it, whatever it is, and you want a Christian to do your work because you want to support Christians, or you're more likely to get an honest job out of them. That's not always true because sometimes professing Christians aren't real Christians as we know, but, but if that's what you want to do, that's, that's all good. I'm just saying, don't make the mistake of thinking uh, that a non-Christian can't pave a parking lot <laughs> or fix a leaky pipe or put an addition on your house or repair your car. And the truth is they can do that just as well, sometimes better than a Christian if they have more skill. I mean, think about it. Think about athletes. Are Christian athletes better than non-Christian athletes? Not, no. not in my experience when I went to high school. And school. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, so they're not now. The reason for which they're participating in everything they do, eating and drinking, whatever you do, including playing sports, that's dramatically different and importantly and eternally different. That's for sure. But it doesn't make them better. It doesn't make them faster. They don't jump higher, you know, any of that. So non-Christian people uh, in God's common grace can and do contribute to society and contribute to culture in meaningful ways. Now, you and I kind of uh, talked about this a few weeks ago uh, in an email exchange, and I was wondering out loud if the good emphasis, the right emphasis that we've put over the years in our teaching on the fact that everybody has a worldview. You know, I teach the teenagers this. Everybody has a worldview, and mm -hmm. we bring our worldview mm -hmm. to whatever topic we study or teach about. And uh, I wondered if maybe inadvertently we've contributed mm. to this mindset folks have. Um, perhaps we haven't taught that explicitly. We're not trying to, you know, we haven't taught anybody that you can't trust non-Christian doctors, for example. Uh, but folks mm -hmm. might have caught, as you said earlier, that you can't trust anybody that doesn't have a, a Christian worldview. I, I think you may well be onto something uh, with that. We've we've lived through a year of what I would call extreme skepticism of, you mentioned doctors and scientists, so that their motives are questioned and their guidance is just, just ignored. Doctors are said to be, for example, inflating COVID deaths so they can make extra money. The president himself said this just a few weeks ago. Scientists who recommend preventative measures are said to have some kind of a dark, nefarious agenda. So I, th I think you might be onto something with that. Yeah, no, never mind that there are likely Christian doctors and scientists among those experts that are giving the mm -hmm. advice on, on policy. Mm -hmm. But as you're saying, uh, that doesn't have to be the case for us to trust their expertise in this area, mm -hmm. right? So, so yep. let's let's talk about how um, we, on the one hand, maintain the truth that everybody has a worldview and it affects how they look at things, and at the mm -hmm. same time. Uh, we should have a healthy respect for the advice of experts like doctors and scientists. 
In, in order to do that, in order to do the on the one hand, on the other hand, yes, on the one hand, everybody does have a worldview, and non-Christians, by definition, don't have a Christian worldview. And yet at the same time, in God's common grace, uh, these non-Christians can contribute greatly to our well-being and the well-being of the community around us. In order to get that, we gotta we have to distinguish between areas where an expert does relative good, like we talked about earlier. They do something good like discover a vaccine for COVID, but they don't do it for the glory of God. But see, that vaccine works just as effectively whether it was developed for the glory of God or, or not. We need to distinguish that relatively good act of expertise from a more active implementation of a, a non-Christian worldview. So, for example, in a blog way back uh, in April, April 24th to be exact, uh, I wrote a blog called, Is Jesus Your Vaccine? And in that, I sought to make the case that Christians should be people of science because it's our belief in a God and his orderly universe that makes scientific in inquiry possible. And in that blog, I distinguished between different kinds of science. I mentioned origin science and operation science. Now, I'm not going to rehearse here all that I said there, I'd encourage you to go to our website, cbctrenton.com. If you click on blog, then you'll see all of the past issues. And that one is the April 24th issue. And, and go and read that. But suffice it to say that there's a big difference between the active bias of a naturalistic worldview that denies the necessity of God for the origin of the universe. There's a big difference between that and a scientist engaging in the search for a vaccine to cure COVID. Yeah, there definitely seems to be a difference there. So can we talk about how should we think about that difference so mm. that we can oppose the one and encourage and appreciate the other? You know, what's the, what's the difference between bringing your worldview to thinking about evolution and creation versus working on a cure mm. for cancer, let's say? Well, I think it's extremely important that, that we make uh, a a further distinction. Uh, but the way we use the word science makes it hard. It complicates things because we refer to things that are quite different uh, as, as science. We refer to them as science, but they're really quite different. When most of us think of science, we think of the scientific method where something's observed and tested in a laboratory. Uh, that's what I called in that blog, operation science. It's very different from origin science, which is not looking in the present at how something is currently operating, but rather it's looking at relics of the past and, and how they may have come to be. It looks at what we've found and then it extrapolates backwards to how it may have originated. Now, when you move from observation to extrapolation, you bring more ideology into the process. So that's one way to distinguish how worldview affects science. Yes, we always take our, our worldview with us, even in a lab. But in that case, it's mostly about whether or not I'm doing this observation and, and observing this operation, whether I'm doing that for the glory of God. And if not, it's still a good thing, but only, as we've said, a relatively good thing. If you're bringing your ideology to the work, like natural processes are the only explanation for what we see, and that's what our evolutionist friends do, well, that's a much higher degree of bias. 
And because uh, of that, there's a a difference between so-called hard sciences and and soft sciences. Hard sciences, uh, (laughs) you know, all the science was hard for me, but, you know, hard sciences (laughs) like biology, (laughs) chemistry, natural science. But, you know, in addition to this distinction between origin science and, and operation science, within the hard sciences. Then you've got the categories of hard and soft. Uh, We apply the word science to things like computer science. Uh, My undergraduate degree is in computer science or or even more uh, like political science and various other social sciences. Yeah, so think about it. Political science involves a greater degree of ideology. It brings this greater degree of ideology to the task than does research for curing a disease, for example. So we have to distinguish between mere observation, which involves doing this relative good, distinguish between that and ideology, which involves active opposition to a biblical worldview. That's good. So so just like with culture and the fact that we can appreciate uh, common grace aspects of culture, like music you mentioned uh, previously, mm-hmm. we can also mm-hmm. appreciate and be thankful for the relatively good work that uh, is done by experts. So not all scientific mm. or other activities bring the same level of um, ideological bias with them, in other words. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. This notion that there are uh, levels of of bias among non-Christians was developed in great detail, I don't know, about 80 years ago by a Dutch theologian. Uh, His name was Herman Dewey And he listed various activities, and he made the, the point that some activities like mathematics, they carry a lesser degree of ideology and a higher degree of common grace for people to be able to carry them out. Uh, While other areas, other activities like ethical considerations also have a very high degree of ideology. And in fallen humans, you see a lower degree of common grace. And so he had, I think, quite an insight there. And he has this whole list of these different activities that humans engage in. Uh, But that's why mathematics is a good example, or as I said earlier, just operation science and just observing what what is happening. It's not to say that the person doing the mathematician doesn't have their worldview. They do. And if they're a non-Christian, they're not engaging in any of those things for the glory of God. But they, they don't bring to those tasks the same kinds of ideolo- ideological considerations and biases uh, that you do to other things like ethical considerations or like politics or sociology, those kinds of things. So there are Many, many areas of life in which non-Christians who are made in the image of God can and do carry out good and helpful work. And, and we should not dismiss what they do simply because it's done by, by unbelievers. So I would say to our, our viewer friends that if you've been involved, especially over these last couple of years with this kind of denial uh, and dismissiveness of the work of people who are using their God-given gifts, even if they're not Christians, to observe what's happening and bring that to the table, but dismissing it because uh, you believe they have an agenda uh, simply because they're they're not Christians. 
that is does not follow. Now, people can have an agenda that we don't know about, but in order to accuse somebody of that, you have to prove it. You have to be able to prove that they're doing that. You can't, we can't just sling accusations against people. So I suggest that we be thankful to God for the work that all of his creatures do and be thankful for the relative good that comes from common grace that allows even non-Christians to use their intellect, to use their skills for the benefit of all of us, for the community uh, and society as a whole. That's great. So um, I think that really covers the, the topic. Uh, it's such an important topic because mm -hmm. it affects uh, many things, among which, as we talked about it earlier, uh, just our ability of how we're perceived as, as credible or not. You know, we don't want to be right you know, to, to say, you know, I, I don't want to take that medicine the doctor <laughs> offered me for yeah. the salesman or whatever, because... Mm -hmm. And then, you know, just dismiss it because they're not a Christian. Uh, yeah. You know, that affects how people view us when we give them other information that's important, like the good news. Um, that's right. That's so right. any other resources you want to recommend to uh, folks on this topic if they'd like to study further? Yeah, I'll mention a, I'll mention a couple of books uh, here. But what you just said there, Pastor Larry, is uh, very good, very, very important. If, if we are not believable, if we don't have credibility, in these areas that involve the whole community, how are we going to have credibility when we, we try to get people the gospel? Um, it, listen to this. Gullibility is the death of credibility. <laughs> if we're, if we're really gullible well about, you know, uh, conspiracies and we buy into those and then we, and then we publicize those, and we say we believe these things without proof. Friends, hear, please hear me carefully. We say we believe these things without proof, and we publicize them, we put them out there. And then we turn around and we say, hey, you should believe in Jesus. And you know, you've lost credibility. Did you know credibility and believability, those are synonyms? <laughs> uh, credo is a Latin word for believe. And uh, so a creed is a statement of what you believe. So when we talk about credibility, we're talking about believability. And, and the unsaved person is going to say, why should I believe you about what you believe regarding Jesus when apparently you, you'll believe anything? If we give the impression that we'll believe anything, then it diminishes the value of what we believe and hold to be most precious. And that is belief in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. So what Pastor Larry said there a bit ago is absolutely the case. Our credibility, our believability, when we encourage people to believe in Jesus is at stake when we dismiss or accept things from the scientific community, but from the culture at large. And how we go about that is extremely, extremely important in order to establish whether or not we are authentic witnesses for, for the Lord. So let me give uh, a couple of sources, resources. One is just a, a very tiny book. Uh, I think it's out of print. I looked on Amazon before we, uh, before we recorded, and it's, not, it's only available in used copies on Amazon, but it may be available other places. Uh, but it's by a guy named Tom 
Nataro, N-A-T-A-R-O, N-A-T-A-R-O. Tom is spelled T-H-O-M, T-H-O-M. Paul Van Til and the use of evidence. Now, very quickly, Pastor Larry knows who very well who Van Til is. Some of our viewers would, but most would not. But Cornelius Van Til was a, a famous Christian apologist, now with the Lord. He wrote uh, very erudite, uh, scholarly things, sometimes very hard to follow. But this guy, Nataro, just uh, distilled in the small book, very helpfully, how Van Til views, viewed the use of of evidence with non-Christians. Now, what's it had to do with what we've been talking about here? Well, what it has to do is in that book, he talks about us having points of contact with non-Christians because we have things in common. So this idea of common grace and the fact that we have these commonalities plays out in our witness to people and our defense of the faith to people, including bringing evidence to bear to defend what, what we believe. And he just uh, does a, a very good job of showing how we can take just about anything that's going on in life and turn that conversation into uh, showing how it's connected to, to the Lord. And then a larger book on this topic of common grace and worldview and how those merge together is one called The Myth of Religious Neutrality. The Myth of Religious Neutrality by Roy Clouser, C-L-O-U-S-E-R. And in that book, uh, Clouser makes the, the point that everybody brings their worldview to them. So nobody is religiously neutral. We all carry our worldview. But he also talks about this idea that Dewey Veard, this Dutch theologian I mentioned, uh, had developed and uh, talks about how that in many areas of, of life and research and study, non-believers can do these things. They have a high measure of common grace. They don't involve a lot of ideology, and therefore you can have more trust in those than you, you can in other areas like ethics and morals and certainly in, in religion. So I'd recommend those. That's great. Uh, the uh book Van Til and the Use of Evidence. Uh, I think I came across that in electronic format that might be free. So if I can find that, I'll link oh. to it. Um, oh, that'd in be great. Case, if I have links to, if I can come up with links for either of these books, I'll put them in the show notes if you're on YouTube or on our uh, webpage that you're watching this or the, the, uh, the uh, notes for the podcast if you're listening in that format. Um, Pastor Ken, thanks as always for mm -hmm. the work that you put in to help us think through and understand these important topics. Um, for those of you watching at home, thanks for joining us. Uh, don't forget to like our Facebook page and uh, share this video there with your friends so more people can benefit from this uh, and you can have uh, helpful discussions about it. And then as well, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you subscribe to our channel and uh, hit the little notification bell so that uh, you get notifications when our new episodes come out. And I uh, think that's it for this week. So we'll look forward to seeing you all in the next episode. If you have a question you'd like us to consider, you can send that into our email address, info at cbctrenton.com, or text it to us at 97000.